there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Hi everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie, and uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts. Wait Scott. a minute, where's the little history lesson? Today, in 1981, my balls, you know, like... Did we, I don't think we did one for the end of the year. Drew, one. I want you to fabricate some sort of history wrap-up for 1981, right now. <laughs> Uh, 1981, uh, Reagan really balls it up. There we go. There we go. There's our whole flashback opening. Hi, I'm Drew McWinney. Welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my host, Scott Weinberg. You can be my host in return. All right, fine. This is the second time now that we've done a best of episode. And uh, the exciting part about that for me is this means we've now done a year's worth of this podcast, Scott. You're making me feel old. Every time I talk to you, I feel older. But it's pretty amazing. We've done now two years, two of the calendar years from the 80s, 1980 and 1981, and we are getting ready to begin our second year of podcasting. Just looking at 82 and 83 and kind of what the next year of watching is going to be, I I get more excited every time I kind of look at the list of what's coming. You know what excites me, Drew? What? Promoting your written words. And recently, you have released another Film Nerd 2.0 book that deals with a genre that's near and dear to my heart. So why don't you pimp your shit? Uh, I did. I just released I Hate You, Old Man, Film Nerd 2.0 versus Friday the 13th, in which not only do I talk about my boy's progression with horror and how for a long time it was a genre they they wanted nothing to do with, and now we've kind of turned a corner and they're starting to get into it, but I also include a list of 150 horror films I think you should show to budding film nerds, and 75 you definitely shouldn't. It's a fun introduction to a genre. Uh, Illustrations, once again, by Trevor Downs, who makes my work look better than it is. And it is uh, available now at 80sallover.com at the Pulp and Popcorn store. So please drop by, check it out. It's awesome. 1981, we are here to wrap it up. Drew and I will uh, will be discussing our top tens, the key Oscar wins, and we will be discussing the top ten American box office champions. Now we're going ten to one? Okay, well, number ten. I think we just finished gushing about this on the December episode or the November episode, and I'm excited to see that this movie actually was in the top 10 for the year. Time Bandits. 42.3 million. Uh, And again, we don't do the adjusting for inflation thing, but I could tell you that $40 million in 1981, that's worth even more now. (laughs) Wait, really? Yeah. I just love the fact that Time Bandits, which was so weird and had such an aggressively strange poster and was so it felt like like it felt like it's something that shouldn't have been a mainstream giant release. I love that it ended up becoming a big hit. And I it really did buy Terry Gilliam the rest of his career. So it seems like that kind of wow, that's such a great, weird adventure movie and nobody went to see it. But yet it made $42 million. It pe- people really went to see Time Bandits. That's number 10, Drew. What's number nine? I can't believe this one. Like This is where you realize that um, what you think endures from a year was not necessarily what was big that year. The Four Seasons was number nine, the Alan Alda comedy. $60.4 million. In the, 
even in the modern era, you'll always find a couple of outliers where it's a romantic drama or a comedy of manners involving grown-ups. Alan Alda was a big star back then. It's just it's strange now to think that that was such a big cultural force because The Four Seasons is one of those things I don't hear anybody talk about. It's not a movie that is at, like actively still as a fan base and that people are celebrating constantly, but it was a monster hit. Number eight of the top ten films of 1981 is... For your eyes only. The Bond films almost always end up at the top 10 for the years they come out. And that's one of the reasons there's 25 of them with the next one. It's pretty remarkable how consistent they manage that franchise. You see other series like go up and down and they have like major revamps. And Superman couldn't even make it to three movies before everything fell apart. And Bond just kept chugging along. Our entire lives, Bond has been there and has constantly performed. The 80s were not particularly great uh, for James Bond. And I happen to think For Your Eyes Only was one of the better uh, examples this decade. Yes? Well, we're heading into rough territory. This is the last time it looks this good for a while. (laughs) Uh, For Your Eyes Only is a decent one. We will, unfortunately, get to to weaker James (laughs) Bond films. But for now, let's celebrate Sheena Easton. that theme um and speaking of theme songs that everybody loves number seven was chariots oh fire that blows my mind because that i cannot imagine that film being that big a hit now and I guess it's like the King's Speech, but even the King's Speech I find entertaining in a way that Chariots of Fire baffles me. I still think it's one of those hits that is kind of inexplicable that it caught fire the way it did. You, you know, it'll be interesting to watch these top ten lists as we go throughout the decade and see how many dramas or adult films, and I don't by adult films I don't mean dirty films, I mean a, a kid is not all that interested in Chariots of Fire, except children like Drew, apparently, who would sit and watch dramas about the 1930 Olympics. You were a weird kid. Mom, can I stay up late to watch a movie? <gasps> it better not be violent. We're not watching The Fog again. No, Mom. Chariots of Fire. <laughs> and the thing is, you're not wrong. Dude, I, I would watch literally anything. I watched an unmarried woman when I was 12. I don't know why. I still don't know why, but it was... Yeah, it was there, and it was it was rated R, and okay, sure. Okay, well, it really must have bugged them that the film that landed above them with $72 million is <laughs> the Cannonball Run. Yeah, look, America, we, we got some culture, but fuck it, the Cannonball Run, that's what we're right? really like. like, you know, on one hand, you have this classy, <laughs> refined, mature drama about aspirations and dreams in a dangerous time and and on the other hand you have these bleeds yeah those bleeds and then you got like literally 40 <laughs> movie stars drunk and coked up just having a ball look number five does not surprise me because i remember number five being a cultural sensation where everybody quoted it everybody knew it it was everywhere and i still maintain it's a miracle we didn't get 15 stripes movies stripes is you know typical example of making a simple straightforward well-made star vehicle at the right time with the right star and we still see it today could be seth rogan could be kamal could be you know it's just like this person is funny like melissa mccarthy perfect example she's funny we don't have to reinvent the wheel she's an unwitting spy or she's a, a housewife mistaken for a, 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 an assassin. You know, it's simple. Well, and literally this same movie made money the year before is Private Benjamin. It's basically the same premise as you take a comic that you love and you stick them in the army and then you watch how they don't fit in the army. And they were sold the same way. It was just which flavor do you like, Goldie Hawn or Bill Murray? I, I just think, and not not necessarily just by dint of it being man v. woman, uh, I love Stripes and I love Private Benjamin, but I think the latter has a bit more to say. <laughs> I oh, think Benjamin's the- a better film, and it's a better film because it's a unified screenplay. It's one person's arc. 
the biggest problem with Stripes, of course, is just that it's so disjointed and there's so many separate pieces of it that feel like different movies. And speaking of comedy vehicles for very talented performers, we now move next to an even more successful, in many ways, Dudley Moore vehicle, Arthur. I think the script was such a machine even before Dudley Moore got his hands on it. But they got, like you say, with timing with Bill Murray, they got Dudley Moore at the moment. America was ready for him. They had been primed with two or three movies before this where they they realized, oh, I really like this guy. And then Arthur was just a machine joke after joke after joke that killed. And him and John Gielgud together, you there was almost nothing you could do wrong in that movie. The man's batting average in this film is astonishing. Arthur... Chariots of Fire and For Your Eyes Only all also share something in that they were driven, their success was driven in no small part by the omnipresence of their themes. The 80s was where we saw movies really start to get sold with music and have it become a huge part of how they kept it present in your head. And we've talked about Flash Gordon and Popeye's movies that we have real fondness for the music. But you look at the the top 10 charts and there's going to be at least four of them or five of them every year where the theme song was as big a cultural moment as the movie. Arthur, he does what he pleases, man. Okay, sir. <laughs> uh, we move now from a likable comedy to a film that is absolutely fascinating for this reason. If you had asked me in 1981 to do our top 10 list of the year, this would have been in my top three. And yet, we did our top 10 for this episode. It's not even in my top 10. This is Richard Lester's Superman 2. Superman 2, remember, was a year late here after it had been out everywhere else in the world, and it was still a monster, monster hit in the United States. These days, that would never happen. You would never have a blockbuster that they let play for a year around the world before it showed up in America. $108 million in 1981 dollars. I don't know if I would call it like MCU level hit or Wonder Woman or Suicide Squad level hit, but you know, it, like looking back, I, I think it's safe to say it was that level of a hit. It was a big deal and, and entered the vocabulary of my friends and I immediately. I had a friend who for years, anytime anybody insulted him or made a crack at, at his expense, he would say, why, why do you, you say, say this, this to me? me? When you know I will kill you for it. The, the Zod stuff was so great. Gene Hackman was so great. It's, it is one of those movies that flawed as it is and as broken as it is in many respects, the things I love about it, I love so unreservedly. And and again, by saying that it probably wouldn't make my top ten again, that's not to say I don't like it anymore. I mean, it, but but it's one of the most interesting sea changes as far as movies go. Because as a kid, I would have not only told you I love Superman too, but it's absolutely better than Superman. Scott, actually, after we do this, after we finish the the list, let's talk about that. Let's each pick the film that we feel the most differently about now from 1981. Because I, I think that's an interesting point. Let's finish with number two and number one, and then we'll get back to that, because I like that idea. The number two film, not surprised it was a hit, especially considering that it had a big Oscar run. I am surprised it's this big a hit. $119 million on Golden Pond. That's a lot of money for on Golden That's Pond. That's a lot of grandparents, man. You old poop, I love your money. I love it. Let him go, Grandma. <clears throat> Never mind, cut that. <laughs> Um, I just think it's amazing, and I remember seeing it with my parents and seeing it with my grandparents, and I think you're probably right. There's a, there was a big family thing that happened with that movie. You got to remember that both Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda were, they're iconic in their own way, but to totally different groups of people. So, dude, for years, I think Jane Fonda was seen as an embarrassment to the Fonda family by the conservative end of America. They were like, oh my God, Jane Fonda's a scandal. Whereas the younger America that thought Jane Fonda was a firebrand and a, a radical and a valuable voice probably saw her dad as a symbol of everything that was old and done in Hollywood. So the collision of the two of them in some ways I think might have been part of what was so exciting because they had never done that before. They'd never acted before. That family really did represent two totally different visions of Hollywood. That's interesting. It's a very interesting theory. My own theory is that the movie made $119 million almost entirely because of Dabney Coleman. Well, see, I think you're probably right. Okay. That's probably it, because Dabney, Dabney Coleman, Coleman is first rate. But there's just one 
key scene between Dabney Coleman and Henry Fonda where they're kind of doing a, uh, a dick measuring contest, for lack of a better word. And uh, it's just a wonderful sequence. So On Golden Pond deserved to be a hit, and it deserved to be an Oscar winner. And it was, in both respects, in spades. So uh, the number one film of the year, cue that music. Was it going to be anything else? Look at the difference. 212 million versus 119 million for number two. There's just no comparison. Raiders of the Lost Ark was everything that summer. What is it? I'm not good at math, but that's almost double. Almost, yeah. It's almost double. And look, I, I hear people say that they, they go to see something like three or four times, and that's a lot. And I know people that they're amazed if they've ever seen something twice in a theater especially because you didn't know when something was going to come out on home video. Star Wars was not on a home video by this point, so we had no reason to expect that Raiders would come out quickly. The listeners have to realize this, that like if you loved, you love Guardians of the Galaxy, you might go see it again. And then you're like, you know what? I got other stuff to do. I got my cool internet. And it'll be out in three and a half months. And it'll be on Blu-ray in three months, and then you can own it and watch it to your heart. I saw Raiders, in the, and I wasn't the kind of kid who saw movies over and over until the video that much. I must have seen Raiders at least three or four times in theaters. See, we, we have different levels of mental illness because I, and I am not exaggerating, it was about a year and two months that it was in theaters. And in that year and two months, I saw it at least 30 times. Every week or so, I would try to get somebody to go see it. And the trick was... Somebody hadn't seen it yet, so just figure out who hasn't seen it and get them to go, and then I could see it again. Yeah, this might be heresy to certain movie geeks, but but hear me out, because I think it speaks to movie love in a different way. Even as a kid, I couldn't articulate it back then, but even as a kid, by like the fourth or fifth time I saw a movie, I found myself getting just not the film's fault, my fault, getting a little impatient, getting a little bored, getting a little less enamored with the film. So whereas four or five times might be a little healthy, for me, if I saw something 12 or 14 times, I can't help but think I'd start to get tired of it. And that scares me. I, I don't want to get tired. Totally get that. Like I said, I have mental illness, or I did when I was a kid. I There's no movie now that I would watch 30 times in a year. I can't even fathom that. Like It blows my mind that I did it ever, but... I think there was a I was trying to absorb things. And part of the difference in seeing something theatrically and over and over and over was it wasn't just about me. A lot of times what I was paying attention to was how the audience would react and how certain things would do the same thing every time and how other scenes, some audiences would react this way. Some audiences wouldn't. I was fascinated by that. So seeing movies over and over to me was as educational about how people digested them as it was to just watch the film. We didn't have like this introspective, like how many times have I seen the film? Am I, am I capable of discussing the film? You know, it wasn't any question of trying to improve your cinema acumen. It was just, I need to be there and see that snake scene again. I need to go and see that fight scene, that chase scene again, chasing that adrenaline rush like a Pardon the analogy, like a junkie would chase a high, you know, just uh, it's not an analogy. I was a junkie for movies as a kid, and that was exactly it. It was I want that same exact feeling right now. Again, I was just listening today to uh, Dana Gold's podcast, and Bob Goldthwaite was saying that the first film he ever paid money to go see by himself, just I'm going to go buy a ticket and see this movie was Young Frankenstein. And he walked out of it at the end went back to the box office, bought a ticket, walked back in and sat down for a second viewing. And he said that that's the only time he's ever done that in his life. I love that people remember moments where they, some part of their movie going experience becomes different, where you turn a corner or you have a, I, for me, Brazil was that movie where I walked out, got a ticket and walked right back in. Uh, now, true. we are going to move on to the films that won the Oscars in 1981. Best original screenplay, the nominees were... Reds, Atlantic City, Arthur, Absence of Malice, and the winner, Chariots of Fire. I can I can see that. And look, I, I think if Arthur deserved any nomination that year, 
screenplay was definitely one of the nominations. Yeah, Absence of Malice, that makes sense. It's a very topical and, and interesting insight into journalism. It's a weird one. I, I get why it was in the mix. I don't think of Absence as Malice as a film that now looking at it from any distance, like it's genuinely one of the finest moments of 1981. Right. It was topical yeah. at the time. Uh, Atlantic City, uh, a very impressive screenplay by John. I like Moore. that script a lot. Uh, yeah. And what should have won probably Reds should have won probably for best uh, original screenplay. Yeah. Reds is is just as a piece of film craft. So overwhelming that one of the most important things that script does is the idea that it introduces the survivors as this framing device and what it allows him then to do in the screenplay is let each scene just be a scene instead of having to also be exposition and dude it's a brilliant writer's move because it allows him to tell such a different story than if he was educating you at the same time it would impress another impressive fact about uh reds is that it is an original screenplay you watch that movie there's no way you didn't think that he had based that on something there's a reason it was a 10 or 12 year process that the Research alone must have been overwhelming. Uh, best Adapted Screenplay. The nominees were Ragtime, Prince of the City, Pennies from Heaven, The French Lieutenant's Woman, and the winner, Ernest Thompson, for On Golden Pond. I think the winner makes perfect sense. I think The French Lieutenant's Woman is a nomination. Look, Pinter is a f- fucking terrific playwright and an unbelievable brain in terms of thinking about how theater works and what it's like when you're sitting in a theater and how to violate your conventional reactions. Like he was brilliant in use of theater. His idea about how to turn that book into a film by making it a film about the making of a film. That's such a big notion that if it had gone catastrophically wrong, all the blame is his. And same with pennies from heaven. I noticed how many people immediately popped up in Twitter to say, I prefer the Bob Hoskins. I prefer the Bob Hoskins. And I get it. I do. There's such different things. The the Steve Martin performance is so radically different than what Bob Hoskins does with the role that I can't even look at them as remakes. Or Yeah, uh, by all accounts, the BBC version of Pennies from Heaven is uh, superior, but we'll have to hold that off until we do our new podcast, 70s BBC All Over. Oh, shit. Uh, Don't commit me to that, please. Um, I don't have that kind of time. We are going to live tweet and live podcast every episode of Doctor Who from 1970 to 1979. Oh, God. God. I I need a nap. I need a nap now. Patreon, 45,000. And that's what we're going to do for you. (laughs) Every week. Wait, but don't. We'll do a daily episode. You know what? Don't order now. (laughs) Don't order now. Because I'll think of something else in five minutes. Okay. We now move on to Best Director. You want to handle this one? As a lineup of guys go, uh, Warren Beatty for Reds, Hugh Hudson for Chariots of Fire, Louis Maul for Atlantic City, Mark Rydell for On Golden Pond, and Steven Spielberg for Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's a hell of a list of guys with Warren Beatty taking the Oscar. You'd love to be able to say, oh, Spielberg won Best Director for Raiders and all is right in the world and feels right in movie land. Man, you look at Reds, and that's really an accomplishment. It's It would be easier to go, oh, that's the political choice, and it's the more mature choice. Da, 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 da. No, Reds, I mean, as much as I adore Raiders, you know, it, it's tough to argue. If you're just talking about director's jobs, I think that the thing that makes Spielberg and Beatty the two choices in that category are they are both so hungry when you watch those movies. Spielberg is on fire in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He shot that movie like he was being chased and burns over 80% of his body from being on fire, (laughs) literally being on fire the entire time. And he would say to people, he would turn to Frank Marshall and say, if I'm on fire, don't put me out because that means it's working. Warren Beatty, though, you look at what he did with Reds and clearly he had lived with it for so long and he believed in it so fervently that when you're watching the like the montage there's a great montage early on where uh diane keaton has just moved to uh, new york to be with him she is feeling more and more like a dish rag the more they're doing stuff and she's feeling invisible and you can see it start to take hold and you see how he is and you see how their dinners are and you see how their friends are I look at how much he had to put together just to cut that montage, just to shoot and cut that montage. It's more work than most films. Warren Beatty had this huge vision in his head that he somehow wrangled on screen, and it's overwhelming when you look at what he did. 
The only thing that really bothers me about Reds, and, and you know, with all due respect to Warren Beatty, Dabney Coleman is not in Reds. And you know what? There are other films in 1981 he also didn't appear in, and you notice that many of them are not in our top ten. Now we move on to Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Uh, Elizabeth McGovern for Ragtime, Joan Hackett for Only When I Laugh, Jane Fonda for On Golden Pond, Melinda Dillon for Absence of Malice, and our winner, Drew, who is the winner for Best Supporting Actress? Maureen Stapleton in Reds, playing a role that was cut from Ragtime. I love that. That's just one of those. Yeah, no, I didn't know that story until I tuned in and listened to this awesome podcast, and now it's my favorite. They give a lot of the juiciest, potentially most controversial stuff to this older, warm, sweet-looking woman. And they like my favorite moment of hers with Diane Keaton is when it's in that montage I was talking about when she finally turns to Diane Keaton, and you can tell that Diane's feeling like nobody even knows I'm here. And finally, this this famous woman, Emma Goldman, turns to her, gives her all of her attention, and says, "So, what do you do?" And she says, I write. And she goes, what do you write about? She says, everything. And there's this look that Maureen Stapleton gets where she goes, oh, really? Everything? Fine. And then just turns back to everybody else to have a conversation. Because what she's saying is, in other words, you have no idea what you write about. You don't know what your voice is. What specifically are you? We're not saying you don't belong here. We're saying, what do you contribute? What are you literally doing? You have no answer. So I'm done with you. And it is withering. It's one of those moments where you feel like, the person that you're watching, I can feel that stomach sinking horror of I have just been dismissed. I think that was my moment and I blew it. Yeah, uh, we move on to best actor in a supporting role. Uh, historically speaking, Drew, would you agree? Generally considered one of the most colorful and competitive of all the categories. And in 1981, certainly no exception. Hard fought too. Uh, Howard E. Rollins Jr. was nominated for Ragtime. Uh, Ian Holm in Chariots of Fire. Um, which I fine. I, I I'm not on the Chariots of Fire train, so all these nominations are like I get it. If you like Chariots of Fire, nominate hey, stuff from it. I guess Ian Holm could. Ian Holm is amazing. Always, uh, Jack Nicholson in Reds, James Coco in Only When I Laugh, which made a hell of a, a showing at the Oscars, all things considered, and um, the winner. John Gilgood in Arthur. That was that. Was, I think that was a given that year. I uh, yeah, it, that performance is just absolutely. Sterling. I mean, Arthur is such a simple film with with very simple components, and he is such a masterful, essential component. His sense of humor, and then later in the film, his reluctant warmth is just essential to the movie. He is uh, my favorite thing in the movie. Even though it's not officially one, uh, this is by far my favorite uh, version of Alfred from Batman. I think I think he's the standard that literally every performance as Alfred should be measured by. That's funny. If we consider Arthur Bach as Bruce Wayne, then yes, he is the best Alfred who's ever appeared. Now we move to best actor in a leading role. Paul Newman in Absence of Malice. Dudley Moore in Arthur. Burt Lancaster in Atlantic City. I'm all about that. Warren Beatty in Reds. And our winner, the illustrious Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. This was his grand hoorah, so... Drew, did you realize that this film made $119 million in 1981? Uh, I didn't until roughly 20 minutes ago. I heard it on a podcast, and the person (laughs) who said it sounded really smart. Yeah, I, I almost got to feel bad for Warren Beatty, Burt Lancaster, Dudley Moore, and Paul Newman, because when they saw that list, they went, they were already like, oh, great just to be nominated. Well, and you know, at the beginning of the year, when everybody was watching Lancaster in Atlantic City, everybody had to be thinking, holy shit, he's got it next year, because he's Burt Lancaster. He's a legend, and he just gave that performance. We're just going to give it to him next year, right, guys? And then Henry Fonda shows up in December, and it's like, oh, Burt, I got bad news for you. <laughs> Our legacy dude just showed up. Uh, Best actress in a leading role. This was the fourth nomination for Meryl Streep out of her 317 nominations for Best Actress. And it was for The French Lieutenant's Woman. Uh, Susan Sarandon was nominated for Atlantic City. And again, only when I laugh, Marsha Mason. This was the uh, fourth of four nominations for Marsha Mason. She had been nominated all four times as a lead. Once Cinderella Liberty, The Goodbye Girl, Chapter 2, and this one, Only When I Laugh, unfortunately. Three of them written by her husband. Yeah, and and I I think that's, we just figured out why Only When I Laugh was doing so well in the Oscars. Marsha Mason, 
respected stage and screen actress, and of course, Neil Simon, legendary writer, director. Uh, and so even if it's a, a B-plus film from those two, it was going to, you know, have that kind of Oscar love, I think. Well, it's funny. We just forget that it, there was a point where Neil Simon was as big a franchise as Marvel is now. Like, Neil Simon was everything to Columbia for years and years. Also, continuing the nominations, Diane Keaton for Reds, and the winner in the category, Catherine Hepburn on Golden Pond, which I would have thought Catherine Hepburn supporting... I don't know if you rewatched it recently, but... Catherine Hepburn's role is twice as large as Jane Fonda. She vanished. I know that they leave. They they drop the kid off and they leave. But I've always felt like the thing that matters most is the resolution of the relationship between the father and the daughter. I think lead has also has a lot to do with, you know, screen time and character presence. I guess so. Yeah, it's just funny because to me, that's Catherine Hepburn's role in that movie is the very definition of supporting. She is there literally as the support for everybody else and every other relationship. And she's like the catcher's mitt that holds that entire family together. That takes us to Best Picture, Drew. Why don't you uh, rattle them off? And by this point, if you didn't know what the Best Picture nominees were, it's because you're not paying attention. Reds, Raiders of the Lost Ark, On Golden Pond, Atlantic City, and the winner, Chariots of Fire. Now, to me, that's the upset. You look at how everything else went down, it really felt like it should have been On Golden Pond, but Chariots of Fire snuck in with pictures, so... Just the winners, real quick, uh, for Reds Cinematography, uh, for Art Direction, Raiders... For Costume Design, Chariots of Fire. For Best Sound, Raiders. For Best Film Editing, Michael Kahn, Raiders. You know what? Technical gets overlooked sometimes, but Michael Kahn is one of the best editors who's ever worked, and Raiders is him working on a supernatural level. He is so good. Beyond that, uh, for Sound, the Indiana Jones punch may be the most iconic noise of the 80s. More than any Star Wars sound, even more than the lightsaber to some degree, that punch Nobody else has ever punched like Indiana Jones or ever will to quite that degree. They're perfect. Best visual effects Oscar. Two nominees, Dragon Slayer and the winner was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Best makeup, two nominees, Heartbeeps, the winner, American Werewolf in London. And that was the year they created that category. It felt like it had to happen then because makeup was such a big deal and Heartbeeps, there was a reason you were interested in seeing that, which was Stan Winston was doing robots, and American Werewolf in London was 100% sold on Rick Baker finally doing his werewolf transformation. So it's remarkable that those two things were the nominees and the reason the category was even there, and that they gave it to the one that deserved it and is still one of the greatest makeup accomplishments ever. So now let's go back, because we talked about this a little bit. Let's do the film that we feel most differently about. What was it? Superman 2. It was Superman 2 for you. I, I used to have debates with my sister and my friends over and over about how <laughs> Superman 2 was better than Superman. It had more action, more villains, more comedy, more adventure, more... I loved it. And as I got older, I learned a little bit more, or actually a lot more, about the uh, funky production of Superman 2, or Superman slash Superman 2. You read how the sausage was made on this movie, and you're like kind of punches holes in it a little bit, and you're like, yeah, now I, I kind of do see the seams between this kind of a Frankenstein monster of a blockbuster. Uh, and, and while I still think it has a lot of charming moments and funny and, and good action and great Christopher Reeve stuff, I don't think it holds a candle to the original. For me, it's Neighbors. It hurts my feelings now. And it's weird because I was so invested. And here's the thing. Looking back at it, I can't tell you that I liked it. I can tell you I was obsessed with it. I was fascinated because I had never seen anything like it. It was so fucking strange. And it was strange because looking at it now, it's profoundly broken and doesn't work. But when you are a fan of somebody and you're 10 or 11 years old, you don't really have the critical vocabulary to even understand what's good or what's bad. You're simply reacting to what you're looking at. And I was fascinated by the film. I was fascinated by the casting choices, by the weird shit going on in it, by the dialogue, by the, the difference between the Thomas Berger novel and the screenplay, all of it. It's a very weird thing to me to watch it now. And I still know every word of that film, whether I like it or not. And as I watch it, all of it comes flooding back to me and all of the time I spent thinking about it comes flooding back to me. But it's a terrible movie. It is shocking to me how bad it is when I look at it now. And it hurts because I know there's something in there. There's a there's an idea that didn't have to be this disaster. 
with those people attached, it's more frustrating. Yeah, it is like a perfect storm of a bad film. And and I, it's unpleasant and discomforting, and I don't enjoy it, but I get why it's fascinating. <laughs> and here's the thing. I find Dan Aykroyd failures may be more fascinating than almost anybody else from SNL's failures. I told you I interviewed him once for a Ghostbusters thing I was working on. It was a fairly long interview, and we talked about Ghostbusters in, entirely, and we talked about his process with his collaborators on the film, and we talked about Harold Ramis a lot. But at the very, very end, I said, listen, this has gone very well, and I've had a really good time talking to you. And he said, well, this was, this was good. I had a good time talking to you as well. And I said, um, I would love to do an oral history with you about another one of your films and just sit down and talk to you about it and then talk to some of your collaborators. And he goes, oh, what film would that be? And I said, I'd like to do one for nothing but trouble. I didn't even get the whole title out of my mouth. And he goes, that would be a terrible waste of time. I think we're done. Thank you. And that was it. And he was gone. Uh, on behalf of our listeners, Drew, I'd like to request that you do the next eight years of this podcast in your Dan Aykroyd voice. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, from now on, Dan Aykroyd's going to show up. All the time. Now, Drew, why don't you get us rolling? What's your number 10 for 1981? My number 10 for 1981 is a, it's interesting, this is a sad year in a lot of ways. There is a sadness that runs through most of these movies. And number 10 is a movie about a, a sort of a moment that's passing and people that are watching it go by and desperately trying to hold on to it called Atlantic City. Did not make my top 10. I am extremely grateful that the uh, doing this podcast forced me to revisit the film. like it very much. Full of good performances. My number 10 is a cheat. It's a double feature. Uh-oh. Drew loves when I cheat. I love it. It's the film noir throwback double feature, Body Heat, and The Postman Always Wings Twice. Interesting. Neither of which made my list. Um, but, because uh, I know you are a big film noir fan, and I know it's a, a genre that when you fell in love, you, re you really fell head over heels. And both of those movies are, we're going to get into one in 82 that also was a great sort of way back into those films. But both of those movies were so good at pointing you back at other films and saying, do you love this? Go find these. Just like uh, Spielberg was plainly in love with the 1930s serial adventures that he was emulating in Raiders, it's pretty obvious that Lawrence Kasdan and Bob Rafelson were both having a ball emulating the film noir films that they grew up with. Drew, my number nine could also almost be on that same list. It is a fascinating uh, late-era noir by Michael Mann called Thief. Ooh, this was my number seven, and I, I agree with you. I think Thief is terrific. What I love about Thief is it's the kind of movie, I don't believe you really could, but it's the kind of movie that makes you feel like, at the end of it, you could go out and fucking do a heist. Like, you feel, by the end of it, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a professional thief now, man. Michael Mann has a great way of making it feel like these procedural films of his are so complete and so meticulous that by the end of it, you've got the knowledge of the main characters. Like It, it reminds me of Goodfellas, in a way, in that it, it draws you into this unpleasant, dangerous world because it's sexy and enticing. But then it's like, oh, you think this is sexy and enticing? Well, we'll show you that it's not. It's an ugly world. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's my, still my favorite Michael Mann film. I'm, I'm very hot and cold on him. But when he's on, when he, when he connects with me, he connects big time. And Thief, I think, uh, is, is a masterpiece. I think it's fantastic. My number nine is Cutter's Way. Ah, good. I'm glad. It's not in my list. I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I want to take a moment here to uh, say goodbye to the late, great man's man, John Hurd. He rips it up in this movie. If, you, if you're going to read anything about John Hurd uh, now that he's passed, read the piece that Daniel Stern wrote, because uh, Daniel Stern knew him and worked with him and was around uh, him in New York in the early 80s and late 70s. And it's the way I, I would love to be eulogized. Like it is a Viking cry from one actor to another. And uh, he celebrates everything that was so great about John Hurd on screen. Um, what's wonderful about Cutter's way is not only the John Hurd performance, which is terrific, but it's Jeff Bridges. And it's one of his first truly great performances. And I, I think Jeff is a guy who found his way and got better and better with age. And I think Cutter's way is one of those moments where he, he really started to bring his thunder Cutter's Way is about how we all have that one fucking friend, this this person who is just you, you are a force of destruction and chaos, but the charisma that surrounds it somehow makes it OK. And and that's what I love about that movie. It's it's messy and it's beautiful. And man, it feels alive. Yeah, it's been one of my uh, favorite low key discoveries for the podcast. I hadn't seen it before we started doing the show. 
We will get to many, many uh, great John Hurd performances later, including After After Hours, which is the film that made me go, oh, another character actor I really like. He just plays an, an amiable, confused bartender in that movie. And from that movie on, I was a John Hurd fan. So uh, rest in peace. It's a, a shame to see him go. So number eight on my list, I'm going to s- guess that this is on your list because I know that you really flipped out when we watched it. Um and uh, I don't blame you. I have always had a soft spot for Pennies from Heaven. Ah, uh, yes, that is my number seven. I absolutely adore Pennies from Heaven. Just a beautifully poignant, fascinating. There's so many different ways to take this film. A lot of people seem to think that the groundwork story, that the, the, the Steve Martin selling the, the sheet music, is the real story. And that everything else is a fantasy that interrupts this bleak story. I don't think that's true at all. But I honestly think that Pennies from Heaven is a 1940s film noir that is periodically interrupted by somebody's memories of a 1930s musical. Steve Martin and Robin Williams in the early 80s were not looking to build the kinds of careers that you necessarily built out of, say, Saturday Night Live. They were guys who were approaching film each film as a totally different thing. That's such and a good point, man, because this was early for him. This Dude, this is right after The Jerk. You have a monster hit with The Jerk. You turn around, and instead of making The Jerk Part 2, you and your co-star then go make this beautiful, haunting movie that is based on a Dennis Potter piece from the BBC. It, it's a remarkable left turn for him, but it shows you what, what Martin was about as an artist and that he was serious about, I'm just going to follow what I'm interested in. My number eight is John Carpenter's Escape from New York. All right. Did not make my list, but I cannot fault you for putting it there. Um, it would have been definitely my top ten in 1981. As a kid, no way to overstate how important Escape from New York was to me. And it was on my short list of stuff that I looked at for the final list. But um, Escape from New York still, to me, holds up as a magnetically entertaining amalgam of Western tropes, sci-fi concepts, just plain old swagger, great ensemble. I love the look of the film. I love the score. It's, it's a really entertaining B-movie, uh, and it is one of the more influential films uh, of my life. I, I will say this, spiffy. And I certainly, I agree with you in terms of the influence. I think that Escape from New York is sometimes underappreciated in terms of how many people have borrowed from it or were influenced by it. Well, we both already did our number sevens. Yours is Penny from Heaven, mine is Thief. So we'll just move on to number six. And for me, uh, number six is a movie that... I am always happy when somebody finally sees this and realizes, oh my God, this is so much more than I expected. I have always, always loved Brian De Palma's Blowout. Ah, this is my number five. You're stealing mine. Uh, This is a movie that I always liked, but I would have just classified it among Carrie and Dressed to Kill, Untouchables, just one of his best movies. And revisiting with it and talking about it with Nancy Allen and... Uh, is really cemented my opinion that this is my favorite De Palma movie. I don't think it gets credit for having one of the great American endings in terms of summing up the feeling at the time. It is it is as great an ending as the conversation. It is as great an ending as the parallax view in terms of summing up the the notion that you lose. And not only do you lose, but in America, once you lose, you get your nose rubbed in it. And you are going to live with it, and it's going to haunt you, and you never get away from it. You know, it's not a big shocker of an ending, but it is like, if you, once you think about it, it's an insidious ending. How could you not be that cynical, though, in 1981? You're talking about the end of the Watergate era, and nobody believed in anything at that point in terms of institution or authority. De Palma's movie is absolutely about the fact that they will beat you. Uh, my number six, and this is... I, I'm having trouble deciding how much of this is nostalgia and how much of this is legit. Clash of the Titans. I can tell you our good friend Aaron Morgan will be 100% on your side, and he's probably got it higher on his list. It's, if you want to just talk about, like, film criticism, there are pro- there are some weak performances in Clash of the Titans. Some of the dialogue is more than a little bit ripe. You know, it does feel like an episodic series of adventures as opposed to maybe a full-flowing quest movie. But... 
not only does it have brilliant Ray Harryhausen work, but it also kind of just captures that fun Saturday afternoon unassuming style. Like Raiders is like, you know, grabs you by the lapels and says, look how awesome I am. And to me, Clash of the Titans was always just quaint, old fashioned. And I'm sure that uh, it's probably how my dad felt when he first saw Jason and the Argonauts. For all its flaws and warts, I absolutely adore the original Clash of the Titans. The Medusa set piece is maybe the best thing Harryhausen ever did. And that's saying something because it's Ray Harryhausen. So then my number five was Blowout. And your number five? My number five is Reds. Uh, it's interesting because Lawrence of Arabia is my favorite movie. And I honestly think Beatty probably looked at Lawrence of Arabia and said, I want to make that, but I want to make it about John Reed. And there is some distinct similarities. But what I find fascinating is there's no action in Reds. Reds isn't an action movie at all, whereas Lawrence has epic action in it. What Reds is about is politics. I can't think of many movies about politics or movies that are political that have managed to somehow do it without being treatises on the politics themselves. It's a good point. Warren Beatty is fascinated by this guy, but he is not trying to advance his politics. Right. This isn't saying John Reed was right. This is just look at John Reed. Yeah, uh, you're right that most movies that cover political issues are not always, but in most cases are on that side of the argument. They can't help it. It's not even that they mean to do it. It's that when you make a movie about that kind of subject matter, you almost inevitably lean one way or another with it. And that's what I find fascinating about Reds is that it is the sprawling, amazing entertainment about a guy who ate and breathed politics. But the movie is more the experience of his life and not meaning to sell you that he was correct or no and it makes the movie even more like brave and fascinating you know when you're like thinking how many people came up to him and said what are you making are you making a movie that says hey this socialist communist was a had a point and he's like no i'm just fascinated in his life how does a journalist end up at a moment that changes western civilization and that's a great character no matter how no matter what he did or what he was about and jack nicholson's performance has to be seen. Has to be seen. It's one of his very best. My number four, John Borman's Excalibur. Excalibur is maybe the most Borman movie Borman ever made. In some ways, it's a big mess, and in some ways, it's just the the, the scope of it blows my mind. I just think it's beautiful to look at. It's it's full of interesting performances and weird moments. It's like it's like a, a dark adventure movie, but told by somebody who who's not into fantastical uh, fantasy. He's trying to do like a literal interpretation of a magical story. Even if I don't love what his choices were, everything in that movie from the very first image to the very last image is John Borman's choice. Like he, there is nothing accidental about the way he has told that King Arthur story. It's so carefully built. And dude, I, I got to respect the Herculean amount of work that went into uh, doing that at a time where you didn't have CG and you didn't have a lot of the same technical tools. It's really heroic work by him. My number four is one of my very favorite films. It is comfort food. It is mashed potatoes. I can put this on and be happy anytime. I love an American werewolf in London. And I'm telling you, sitting down and 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 just hitting play on this movie, having already seen it, and just having the two of them walk across the moors and having, like, knowing that it, this is going to spread across me for the next 90 minutes and I'm going to absorb it again. Mm, yeah. The idea that Landis wrote the first version of it when he was 19 makes sense because it's a young man's movie. It's a young man's movie in that it thumbs its nose at everything about the genre and knows everything about the genre, so it plays by all the rules as well. Yeah, but that's one of the beautiful things about it is that it does feel like... Somebody who's also saying, hey, hey, this is the new kind of werewolf movie. But it's also smart enough to go, but I'm also going to have my werewolf movie kind of run smack dab into the classic werewolf movie. I honestly believe Spielberg and Landis and Lucas and that generation and that group of guys, Joe Dante in particular, they are the precursors to Quentin Tarantino in that they are film brats, plain and simple. And it was the conversations they had with their friends afterwards. That's what I love at the beginning of this is that that. It feels like two kids who love horror films walk into a 1930s universal horror film when they're in that pub. That is such a stereotypical version of that thing. And 
it's like they walked into a theme park for a moment. And I love that Landis lets that be the joke. Oh, and it's a, there's not a wasted scene. There's nothing in the movie that you'd like. If you were to say, Scott, cut five minutes from American Warfare in London, I don't know where I'd find it. Uh, it's just it's a masterpiece. And, and I don't like to necessarily call things masterpieces to me. Growing up as a movie geek, to me, masterpieces were like 40, 50 years old. And then I realized, hey, Scott, American Werewolf in London is uh, it's about 40 years old. So, <laughs> my number three is a film we have covered extensively. I will gladly throw in another few words about Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. That's my number three! Oh my god, we should do a pod. Let's do a podcast together. <laughs> what do your boys think of Time Bandits? They each reacted to totally different things. Toshi really loved the history side of it. He saw it when he was much younger. I wrote a Film Nerd 2.0 about it when he was five, I think, or six. It upset him. He got really, really sad in the middle of the movie when the Time Bandits showed up and took Kevin away from King Agamemnon. Even as a kid, you're like, wait a minute. On one hand, I want him to leave there because it's an adventure movie and he has to leave. But on the other hand, as a kid, you're watching, you're like, no, you jerks. He's happy here. <laughs> Yeah, it's and it really upset him as well. And he remembered bits and pieces of it. And then coming back to it, Alan loved the silly of it. The Robin Hood stuff, he just laughed and laughed and laughed at the Robin Hood scene and made me play it two or three times for him. Well, our, no, our number three matches Time Bandits, and I guarantee, I'm pretty positive our number one will match. Uh, my number two is Stanley Kubrick once called it a perfect film, and I'd have a hard time arguing with him. I love modern romance. That was my number 11. My apologies, Albert Brooks. What a great movie. It is a movie that every time I've come back to it, I appreciate it more. I think it is incredibly well calibrated. It's a remarkable statement about how relationships had fundamentally changed. I love that he, unlike Woody Allen, I believe that Albert Brooks is willing to be wrong on film and, and to play a character who is weak and makes terrible choices and is genuinely not to be emulated. And Modern Romance is not a film about a guy that you're supposed to like or want to be you're like. You're supposed to see your weakest moments in this guy, I think. Yeah, he is the worst of us all. And uh, whether it's the date that is one of the most remarkable dates I've ever seen where he picks the woman up, drives her around the block and drops her off, or... It's or him trying to buy stuffed animals for his girlfriend at a pharmacy and harassing a person who works there. It just it was scene after scene. He's a nightmare. The best comedians just they, they know how to nail stuff that we can relate to. I hate to say it, but that's why jokes about like airline food are a cliche because we all know yeah. airline food sucks. So that's the beauty of Albert Brooks is that he would find these foibles in, in humans, mostly in men, of course, but it, he would find these foibles that we all can relate to. And he would just lean on it and be like, no matter how painful it gets, you've been there. You can relate. Watch the scene. And it's a it's a beautiful scene for several reasons. But watch the scene where he goes and he decides he's going to get healthy and he goes to the store to buy workout gear and health food. And the guy who's selling him this stuff is Bob Einstein, his brother, who everybody knows is Super Dave. The two of them are, A, they have unbelievable comic rhythms because they're brothers and they know how to make each other laugh. But beyond that, watch the, the way Albert Brooks thinks about getting healthy and then watch what he does with it in the next sequence. That's a mini movie right there about how people handle themselves after breakups and what they're going to do to turn their lives around and how momentary those changes are. Yeah, in in many ways, I think it's his most impressive movie. I think I like Lost in America and Defending Your Life a bit more, but those were films after he had achieved some degree of success and had a lot more resources at his disposal, whereas I think Modern Romance, he probably made with sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, and it still holds up as one of his best movies. My number two is the double feature of American Werewolf in London and Joe Dante's The Howling, and if you try to separate the two, I will claw your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> I am not remotely surprised the Howling is on your list, and it should be. I Look, I think both of your double features make sense. I completely understand why you would want to group the two of those together. And when you watch Werewolf and Howling back to back, they are such interesting takes and totally different and saying different things. It feels like two geeky filmmakers were given a, a free ticket to go make a werewolf movie and don't, you know, they and it looks like neither of them looked at each other's work and went and made their own distinct werewolf movie. Joe Dante and John Landis, uh, not surprisingly, two of my favorite filmmakers. 
And uh, I, I, if I had to choose, no, nah, I'm not even going to play that because they're just, I, I think American Werewolf in London is considerably more well-known. So hopefully by pairing it with The Howling, I, I'm, I'm maybe uh, inspiring a few horror geeks to go and check out The Howling if they haven't yet. And now we just move on to our number one. From three two one and we both just say the title because we know it's going to be the same thing well the, the, the full title or just the first word the, let's say the full title okay three two one indiana the incredible Jones shrinking woman and the oh wait indiana <laughs> yes raiders of the lost ark hell yes raiders of the lost ark hell yeah raiders of the lost ark i mean this could would be the number one film of both years it is preposterously great and it's so great and so iconic from moment to moment to moment that it's really not fair and this is where distance comes in because from a distance i think 1981 had some terrific movies some of the other movies we didn't mention that, that i really loved uh, polyester or dragon slayer or prince of the city or ragtime or taps southern comfort there were other really good movies that year and there were a lot of them raiders of the lost ark is very simply one of the great movies, identifiably of a different order of filmmaking. Go onto Twitter or Facebook or perhaps MySpace and ask this question. What is a great film that we can all agree is great? I bet you the most common answer you'll get is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it's funny the the whole thing popped up this week where Spielberg once again took a indirect shot at the ribs to uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom by saying that he thought Crystal Skull was a better film. Sorry, Stephen, uh, that's crazy, and you're crazy. I really don't understand how it's a conversation, because I get it, the sequels, you can all, the, of the sequels, I think everybody can have a different favorite. But Raiders of the Lost Ark is Raiders of the Lost Ark, man. I, I can see digging Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and even key points and, and large portions of, of Crystal Skull. But when somebody says, and I, it happens, you see it on Twitter, when somebody says Indiana Jones greater than Raiders, I'm like, dude. Yeah, no. Nah, just no. The, the way Kasdan and Spielberg handle exposition in this movie is educational. Other filmmakers should watch this anytime they have to make this kind of movie. Because, dude, I can't tell you how tired I am of sitting in theaters listening to people talk about the matrix of the circuit of the the heart of the... And then we have to put the doodad on the thing, and then we have to... I hate it all. And Raiders makes it look like ballet. Every bit of it is entertaining. Character is king. I love every character in this movie. I love Sala. I love Marion. I love Marcus Brody. I love... I love Belloc, for God's sake, is such a great bad guy. I love Tote. I love watching how they all interact. Here's my recommendation. If you've never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> stick your finger up your ass and punch <laughs> yourself in the mouth. That's all. That's it. I'm done. I, th I thought you were really going to help somebody there. <laughs> How did you get here? How did this happen? Did you fall? Is this just playing? <laughs> is there is there something wrong with your? Do you just type random <laughs> things into the computer and just listen to them? Eight zero S A O eighties all over. Okay, I'll listen to that. What is that? Here's what I'd like to end this on, and and I hope uh, movie fans will, will will appreciate this. You don't know when you've seen a classic, but when you look back over 10, 20, 30 years, you know. And there are moments in your childhood, young adulthood, adulthood, where you are watching a classic and you just don't know it yet. Raiders was one of the very few movies where, after like three months, we knew. By the end of the opening sequence, if you sat in a theater and listened to a 1981 audience react to everything up to the boulder hitting and Indy rolling up to Bellick's feet, audiences went berserk when that happened. Like, And it was like this pent-up emotional thing where they got to the end and they started breathing again for the first time in three minutes. I um, mean, it's just nice to know that every generation – will get their own classics. You know, I hear you hear about like, oh, Casablanca and Key Largo and Maltese Falcon and uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And da, da, da. you know what? Well, my generation can go That's Raiders of the Lost Ark. We might have more, but we got at least one. And the key to Raiders is they're making something out of love. This is not we got to make an adventure movie because we need something for June. This is a guy who had just caught lightning in a bottle as a brilliant young filmmaker. And they said, what do you want to make? And Everybody dreams of that. Somebody grabbing you and saying, you're amazing at what you do. What do you want to do next? 
and you go home for three days and you really think about it and then you come back. That's Spielberg with Raiders. The love comes through every frame. It's not only the best of 1981, it is one of my fondest memories. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, um, if you would love to find us on Patreon uh, at Patreon 80s all over, uh, we are enormously grateful for all of you who have signed up so far and your support means everything to us. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Share the word about the show. That's how people learn about it. And please stop by the 80s all over dot store at 80s all over dot com. As always, I'm Drew McQueenie. Thank you for listening. I'm Scott Weinberg, and I also would like to thank you for listening. We'll be back with 1982.